Hi there, and welcome to the Homestead Education Podcast. Do you have a homestead, farm, or just dream of a rural life? This is a show to help you and your kids grow your own food and grow as a person. I'm your host, Cody Hanner. I'm a homesteader, homeschool mama six, and small town enthusiast. I was raised by an old school rancher and blessed by the grace of God to have been exposed to so much of what rural life has to offer. Join me every week to talk about homesteading, homeschooling, and growth with a homestead education. Hi, everyone. Today, I have Rachel DeMille. She's a co-founder of a movement called Thomas Jefferson Education, which is a homeschool lifestyle. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Thanks for having me, Cody. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, Do you want to tell everybody a little bit more about yourself? Uh, Yes, I'm the mother of eight children. They range now in age from 31 down to 17. We've got all kinds of interesting you know, giftedness and disabilities and divergent learning styles. I've got a son with who's profoundly disabled. I've got two kids who are dyslexic. I've got several who would be, I think, considered gifted, including the dyslexic ones. So we've got, so it's been kind of interesting over the years as we've promoted these ideals and practices for successful homeschooling, uh, you know, a lot of times you get people who are insecure, or whatever, who say, well, you, it's easy for you because you know what? I don't think it's any easier for me or than it is for anybody. And I don't think it's easy for anybody. I and don't think yet, so either. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so rewarding. It's so mm-hmm. beautiful. And I got to say, I don't think not homeschooling is easy. So I don't, I don't get the argument for <laughs> easy, not easy. <laughs> That's actually part of my story of going into homeschooling is public schooling was so hard on us that we switched seven years ago. Wow. Well, um, our story started many, many years ago. My husband and I've been married for, I think, 32 years now. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and when we first started out, we, we we had kids quite early on. In fact, three really close together. Our first three were born uh inside of just over two and a half years. And oh, wow. I've heard of Irish twins, but Irish triplets. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Anyway, so I had this sense that I wanted to homeschool. I have a sister who's four years older than me. And she's just always been kind of my my idol, my mentor. I mean, not as kids. I we we had our strife of like every, you know sisters tend to do. But as she married quite early and she and her husband started homeschooling with her, her young brood. And I married sort of late. There was eight years difference between when she married and when I married. And so her family's pretty well established by the time ours is just getting going. Um, anyway, so I saw the culture of her family and it just, it tasted good. I, mm-hmm. it felt different than, than things that I was previously exposed to. I didn't really know anything about homeschool. I didn't have an opinion about homeschool. This was back in, you know, the late eighties. And back then it was really out there. Woo woo. Right. <laughs> there were a few pioneers who were died, died in the wool, but for the most part, it was considered very fringy out there. And yet here was it. In fact, he, this, this little family was so cute and so sweet. He was a professional educator um, had worked in the public school system for years and then uh, started a private school. And yet their choice was to homeschool. And I just loved the way their children interacted with each other, the way the, there was just peace in that home. 
and there was curiosity and there was just a harmony. I love how much my kids love each other. Right? Yes. That for me is so big. And in fact, um, when we had, I want to say three, maybe four kids at this point, uh, my husband was called on to, to give a, a seminar at a private school in San Diego. We're, we're from Southern Utah. Hmm. So we went, we went to this private school in San Diego where he was going to do a presentation for training the, the parents and teachers. And we were invited to stay with this family that were participating like part-time in this school. And they had probably seven kids at the time. They ended up with 10. Mm. But some of the kids were already in their teens and they were mostly girls. And I remember being so stunned the distinctiveness of their family culture. I'd walk past, you know, they had one of these big, uh, I call it a pit. It's one of those couches that has all of the, you know, wraparound. What do you call those? Uh, I can't just a wraparound couch. The, the, word, the word escapes me right now, but it's, <laughs> it's, it, it's like this big couch that has, you know, three sides. And there was this passel of girls, their teenage daughters, like, draped over each other like a litter of kittens <laughs> and they were talking they were laughing and I'm like wait what mm-hmm. these are teenagers this isn't just my sister's you know preteens. these are yeah. teenagers and I don't even call them teenagers because to me that's something else they these were teens these were youth who you know they were still complicated they were still emotional they, they still had the challenges of adolescence uh-huh. Their family culture was so unique and different. And I'm like, that's what I want. That's what I want. And that, and I remember talking to this, their, this dear friend, and she's a great homeschool mentor. Her name is Sherry Logan. Uh, I said, how do I get what you have? She said, Rachel, don't worry. You're right on track. You're going to have it. Yeah. And she was right. She was right. The, the peaceful, nonviolent homeschool that we chose has led to just that where our children are excellent they're upstanding they are interesting they're funny they're fun and they love each other almost above all else and they invite mm-hmm. others into that that beautiful friendship in a way that's so supportive it's not exclusive it's not you know clickish but there's just this harmony in the family in spite of again the personality differences and the imperfections that every family is going to have, but there's just a special level of, of bonding that I think is directly, directly attributed to right practices and true principles. And we have tried to codify these things in our way into a vision that we call a Thomas Jefferson education. Now the name Thomas Jefferson is pretty evocative of a lot of things. And, and, and in fact, in my husband's book, a Thomas Jefferson education, one of the very first things he writes about is how uh, John F. Kennedy, when he was president at one point, hosted a group of Nobel laureates. These are the winners of the Nobel prize, right? In their various fields. And he had a luncheon for them. And in having a little speech prepared for them, he said, this was, and I'm going to paraphrase, but it's pretty close. And you can look it up in the book, or I'm sure you can find the quote online. But um, he said, this was the greatest uh, assembly of, of talent and intellect that that White House had ever seen since Thomas Jefferson dined alone. <laughs> so wow. he, Thomas Jefferson is renowned for being this icon of a great education. Mm-hmm. When 
it was said of him, you know, if you found him walking along the way and you walked with him a mile, if you spoke to him of, of plants and, and, and whatnot, you would think he was a botanist. If you spoke to him of music, you would be sure he was a professional musician. And he was, of course, an architect who designed his own Monticello. He, he had all these various areas of expertise, but perhaps most important and most lasting is his contribution to the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. The idea that all men are created equal and it is our duty to self-govern in ways that are founded in natural law. And the, the thing about Jefferson is that he had an education to match his mission. And that right there is the motto of Thomas Jefferson education, to get an education to match your mission. It's not that we all need to be political. It's not that we all need to be even multifaceted as he was but that we all need to do what we were born to do and that we need an education that matches that vision. And as my husband was a young man seeking education of his own, he, he had all the great expectations. You know, he was, a, he was bright. He was, he was talented. He'd had a kind of a rough start because of dyslexia, but when he finally, you know, resolved some of that to where he was able to, to get an education, he, um, he spent a lot of his time doing this thing, that thing, and the other thing, really excelling in ways that took, uh, that, that colleges and universities took notice of him. He was, he got scholarships to Air Force Academy and West Point and all the big universities. Nice. Um, he got the, you know, our state has a thing where they have two um scholars that they recognize each year as the most outstanding graduates of the year. He was one of those. He was a four-year scholarship recipient of the president's scholarship at his university where he attended. He had an ROTC scholarship that also paid full ride. So that was just money in his pocket. Anyway, he was this, this amazing student. But as he went through this process of, you know, excelling in high school and then excelling at the university level, he had sort of this underlying, um, I don't know, muted panic that he was missing something. He wanted a Thomas Jefferson level education. He was really moved by the, the, the generation of the founders. It wasn't just Jefferson, mind you. It was a whole generation. I don't really understand that feeling because I am a lifelong learner. I constantly need to be learning something new and having that feeling of, I don't know enough. It's almost like imposter syndrome, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I well, find I pack around like three books in my bag all the time, plus one on my phone, just because I always need to be able to have to be taking myself to that next level. Well, and in his case, he felt like he was born to promote freedom and he had his particular mission in that. And right. he just figured out in high school, you know, I'll do all the things I'll, 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 get the grades, I'll do that all that I'm supposed to do, and I'll get a great education. He got to the end of high school and he's like, well, that was cool, but I don't feel like I, I got what I was meant to do. I don't feel like I have that education to match my mission. So so most of the way through college, he's doing all the things. He's got the he's the TA, he's the, you know, the nominee, the this, the that. And he's almost to the end of those four years and he's sitting down going, where's the beef? I've been asking for extra readings. I've been spending the hours. I've been doing all the things, but I still feel like there's a vessel that's empty and it's the vessel that I'm supposed to fill in order to do what I was born to do. And that was the start of a Thomas Jefferson education. That was where he started to look for a mentor 
who would help him fill that vessel, who would help guide him, who had, uh, who was a little further down the way, who expected more of him than he expected of himself, who had a greater vision of what he was capable of than he had for himself. And that mentor worked with him privately while he was actually still in the university program. And then after that, you know, he actually at, at one point decided to move on and do that exclusively. And that was where he got really deep into what made the founder special and what is it that I need to do to have an education to match my mission. And sort of like what you shared with me before we started, as you're creating this, this thing that's for you and for yours, you have this sense of, well, I need to share this. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was the process. How did Jefferson become Jefferson? How did Madison become Madison? How do I become who I'm supposed to be? So that when our generational call comes, we are ready with what we need to do. And that's where we came up with a Thomas Jefferson education. And really it comes down to Jefferson was special and and his peers were special because they studied long, hard and effectively in their youth and young adult years in a way that our generation not only hardly conceives of, but doesn't even value. You see a kid Mm -hmm. with their nose in the book that much and you're like, you know what, put your book down, go out and do something. Right. It, it, our, our society almost militates against that type of commitment in youth. And strangely, at the same time, our society regiments the education of little ones. I was just getting ready to say, like in mainstream education, like you have to do it. But then they're only giving you the baseline of what they think you need to have. And, and it's pretty much one size fits all. Mm-hmm. And when age, defines what fits you know anyway one of my kids asked me last night why do we do grades when we're homeschooled and honestly my best answer was just to give us an idea and for you to connect with your peers and and if that's something that's important for some kids it is some people have a a career or a mission track that requires them to be able to communicate on that level for people to be able to you know evaluate them on that level and mm-hmm. some people that, that couldn't matter less. You talked about having your, your homesteading goals. I have uh, my, my husband's brother. He and his wife did what they called farm school. <laughs> yeah. And their kids are so well-educated. It's like scary. Mm-hmm. You know, talking about languages and history and mythology and, and, and politics and all that. They know stuff. Yeah. My I don't know, they they probably talk. never got a grade. And that, because in the context of what they were trying to accomplish, that wasn't significant. My 14-year-old, he's autistic, which makes him a little more hyper-focused on some things, but he can sit and have an amazing, he's the one who asked me about the grade thing last night. He's very insightful and his, he can have a very long conversation with you about advanced dairy genetics. Yeah. But, you know, trying to get him to match two shoes, totally different conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me take you back to the narrative because you realize that, that, the likes of Jefferson and Madison were able to do what they did because of how they treated those critical, you know, those years of youth and young adulthood. And not only does our society not value and even militate against that, but they're not prepared for it. So we had to kind of deconstruct, reverse engineer. So if we do want a youth that studies long, hard and effectively, what has to come before that? And in that process, we sort of uh, detected 
I won't say we defined because this is not our creation. This is more us um, observing and describing what we see. We detected these phases of learning. And in the youth, we call that the scholar phase. Hmm. Prior to that, in order to be able and willing to study long, hard and effectively in scholar phase, you have to have achieved a passionate love of learning. And so the preteen years, about nine to, to 12 or 13, we call that the love of learning phase. And in, in, in that time, there's this sense of things are fun, it's creative, it's, it's whimsical. It's not about measuring up to standards as much as experiencing things and gaining a sense of being powerful and having ownership of your learning process mm-hmm. and knowing that it's your job. Okay, I'm the mom, I might be the pocketbook, the cheerleader, the chauffeur, the the whatever, but I can never make you learn. Learning mm-hmm. is something that we choose and it starts with a question. And so we, we, we enshrine that process and we, we um, activate it through our own modeling and, and the resources and opportunities that we, we create and facilitate, but it's up to the learner to decide to invest themselves to put in the effort. And that comes at that age, kind of learning through play and through experience and just exposure. And there's no like end game of this is what you have to learn by this time. It's all about opening the doors. I think that's one of the reasons I always kind of wished we could unschool Mm. because I love that process of exploration. Well, and teaching- I know we could always choose what we wanted to do, but we had one neuro- non-typical child who you either regimented or everyone's life was miserable. So I kind of had yeah. to roll. <laughs> well, in TJ Ed, some people have compared it to unschooling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can see the intersections and why they say that, mm-hmm. but really it's, it's unschooling plus, if you will, because it's not just about the, the, the side of chaotic child-led learning. Uh-huh. There is a vision there's a sense of purpose and the, the, there, is, there are skills and processes that the parent uses to, to optimize freedom for each child so that it becomes, like I said, that sense of ownership, that sense of powerfulness, that sense of purpose. So that when they hit those, those youth years of self-discovery, of being a little bit more capable of abstract things, of, of doing hard things just because you should, they have that innate sense of learning is good and I'm powerful and couple that with the, that sense of mission. That's just budding in You're giving me like group. a fire in my belly. <laughs> I hope so. It, it's, it hasn't died for me, <laughs> but in order to do this, you don't just want somebody who loves learning and who's willing to study long, hard and effectively. You have to start somewhere that is what we call core phase. And that's where the foundations are laid of right and wrong and true and false, good and bad. Our relationships are what, what is the higher power and what is my relationship with that? What is truth and how do I detect and define it? And that is the core phase, the early years of say zero to eight. So you've got core phase first and in truth, we never leave core phase. We never leave any of the phases. We only hope to successfully gain the lessons that are prime for those phases as we continue to build, you know, outward from the core. So core phase is zero to eight. And these ages are accurate within 99 years. 
And then love of learning is like nine to 12. Scholar phase is 13 to 18. Then after that, there's the adult phases, depth phase, uh, 19 to 24. Then there's mission phase and impact phase. And I don't want to go through all of that because it's really not the purpose of us here, but we do actually have a book. The, our book of Thomas Jefferson Education describes and gives an overview of this whole vision, um, including the phases of learning. And then we have an actual book called The Phases of Learning that has like 150 pages on core and love of learning. And that has a couple of chapters on the transition to scholar phase and scholar phase and then depth phase and so forth. And it has basically everything from infancy to grandparenting. And it, and it, and it uh, references developmental psychologists and educational experts and how their ideas intersect with this kind of construct that we've defined. And, it's, and, and it gets into the nuts and bolts of what are the seasons for? What are days for? What are mornings for? What are evenings for? What are weekends for? And how do we optimize these rhythms for the core, for the love of learning, and how do we facilitate a natural transition into being a youth who studies long, hard, and effectively with that sense of mission that gets them through the hard things and actually leads to a, a life that's satisfying and fulfilling and meaningful and doing what they were born to do. It doesn't mean, leader, we call it leadership education, but the leader in TJ Ed isn't I don't know, somebody that everybody files in behind them and just does what, what they're doing. A leader is somebody who owns their choices, who does what they are supposed to do, whether it's lauded and or even known by anyone or not. A leader is somebody who lives authentically what they were born to do. And almost really, like, I love that. My husband's working right now on being what he wants a leader for our family and like redefining what that is for him as we kind of transition into a new phase of our parenting. Right. And that's, I, I really like that phrase, like owns their choices. Yeah. I even, uh, I, I created a, a sort of a, a, a visual that for me defines the, the qualities of a scholar, because I mean, a lot of times we have these question, what is, my end game. What is my goal for my homeschool? What is success? And I sat down and said, what do I want for my kids? Because they're never ever, not just in my 18 years where I have close contact, but they're never ever going to know everything. They're never ever going to have no deficits or perfected skills in everything. That's not happening. It just so, doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not even, it shouldn't even be the goal. Who cares about all of that? Some <laughs> things just aren't relevant to an individual's experience. Well, I was reading a book on writing a speech this week and literally he said, don't get on the plane if you don't know where you're going. <laughs> I was just like, oh my gosh, that makes so much that sense. So <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> but um, I, I actually have a resource page for when I give speeches like this. It's mm -hmm. called, it's at tjed.org slash cc. Mm -hmm. And you'll see there that meme that I've created that shows what the various Oh, I want to qualities. Yeah. And it also has um uh it, it has links to, to where you can learn more about the phases of learning and stuff like that. So okay, and just so everyone knows I will link this all in the show notes. So, brilliant. Yes. Brilliant. I'm excited to go dig a little further now. I get all excited with my hands, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> well, and at least I painted my nails last night. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I never do that. I, I can, you know, I can get away with it as the like homesteader, like even as I 
go to conferences and stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, I can be a mess because I was working at the farm before. <laughs> you know what I've been doing all morning is, is researching um, bottle-fed Nubian bucks. Oh. <laughs> my my does didn't breed this season and I'm so mad. I'm like, I'm done. We're getting our own Billy. It so. happens. I we uh I mean we have nine sows and we raise four each pigs. And they all need to be born between like January 1st and maybe like March 15th at the absolute latest. And we had one litter during that time. And that's like our biggest income producer of the year. And the one litter we had was out of my daughter's show pig and she only had five piglets. And so all of them are going to my kid's show pig. Like I'm not even selling any of them. I mean, I might sell two after fair, like as whole hogs, but... Where do you want to go from here? Oh, let's see here. So I really love this model of learning. And what I was really seeing is the parallels between not only this style of learning, but how this can really fit with life. And I I know we were talking about specifically the children, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about how this parallels in an adult life. That's a great, great question. And not one I get very often. I will say that um, when you have these phases of learning well attended to and you and the, the lessons that, like I say, are prime for each phase and without you know spending a lot of time in that, our, our book, The Phases of Learning, literally has you know graphics that talk mm-hmm. about the, the lessons of each phase. But um, when those phases are well attended to and you've got those prime lessons under your belt, it makes for a very natural transition in the phases of adulthood. We, you know, there's a, the, the big joke about midlife crisis where people get to a certain place and they're like, is that all there is? Is that all I am? And they, they look for things to fill like these, these mm-hmm. vacancies in their soul. And it's just, it becomes self-destructive and selfish and, and, you know, leaves a, a trail of carnage and wreckage behind them as they explode their relationships and their watching their, a family member go through that right now. Ugh. And it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And it's, in my opinion, it's directly related to the missed lessons of the phases. And the beautiful thing is we can heal. We actually can go back and renegotiate those lost lessons. And one of the very best ways to do that in my experience is through parenting. Because when our children are in core phase, if we don't do violence to that process for them, it's healing for us. We get to go through the that safety net nest place and reset, if you will, kind of reshuffle. And as you do that, as you go back to those early lessons, and it's a little bit, you know, sounds a little bit psychotherapy, but. Oh, I, I was actually sitting here. I'm writing a book right now called raising the self-sufficient child. And one of the things I talk about is that you actually, you're raising adults. You aren't raising children until they turn 18 and then being like, good luck in life you're raising them to be adults without skipping their childhood, you know? Yeah. And I 
am actually healing through the relationship that I have with my children that I didn't have with myself or with my parents at that age. And that's, that's really, I think that's part of how it's supposed to be. Cause no matter how perfectly you do everything, life happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we had such this glorious little, I don't know, nest, this protected mm-hmm. space where we were raising our five little kids when, I mean, and my husband would read to our kids for hours every week. We had no television. It was, you know, we had these, this amazing group of families of friends. We, we had, it was just, it was beautiful. It was just everything you thought I would want for my family at that phase. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden our baby number six came and although it was a difficult birth that almost ended in tragedy, everything Ooh. turned out okay. And then two months later, in a car accident, he sustained a brain injury. And to this day, he is, you know, very diminished in, in terms of what a natural potential would have been for him. He has the use of one arm. He can speak, but he's got developmental delays. He's very happy. He's he's wonderful. He's a delight in the family. I, the, the tragedy has long since turned into you know, a real sense of why this is beautiful and why it's wonderful. But as you can imagine, that was a real assault on our little family. And every one of us felt it in different ways. So, and in particular, our, our daughter who was five at the time, she had been really chatty and kind of emotional. And all of a sudden she turned into this little perfect child. She was quiet. She was easy. And, um, she just, I guess, decided we had enough complications and she had this sense of it was her job to not add to anybody's burdens. Well, that worked just fine for almost 10 years until we started to notice she wasn't really progressing into scholar phase. Hmm. We're like, what in the world? Everything supposedly is in the right space for her. What She's had all the same opportunities that her other siblings had. And she was sort of withdrawn, sort of unhappy. She could go through the motions and do, you know, what she was supposed to do, but she didn't feel authentically realized. And she was struggling with her relationship with her dad as, you know, 14 year old girls might tend to do with one or both of their parents. Right. And we sat down one day and talked about it. And I said, you know, Eliza, you look to me like you're stuck at about six in terms of the lessons, the emotional lessons of safety and autonomy. And I said, I think that you kind of went into hibernation after Hiram's accident. And we, we looked at that and she decided I was right. I won't go into the whole long thing, but in the process of helping her with that healing, one of her important things, her love language is physical touch. I used to just take that 14 year old girl and hold her in my arms as if she were a baby Hmm. or or a toddler. Um, Because as you might imagine, not only was I away at the hospital with my infant for five weeks, but when he came home, it was all about him managing his drugs and, and therapies and blah, blah. Um, our number six was a very challenging pregnancy and birth and he has continued to be probably the most challenging creature I have ever dealt with in my life 
even more than the pigs i compare him to stitch you know like he just growls and bites like so and i'm not being overly funny like i mean he actually my 14 year old was trying to get an orange from him the other day because it was like his 17th orange that he'd eaten in one day (laughs) and he's trying to get it away from him and literally the three-year-old is growling and biting (laughs) i am my word well Uh, I mean, last night he aggressively tried to steal dinner for over an hour while we were cooking it. Um, and he's he's really brilliant. Like I've never seen a kid this smart before. But he doesn't talk yet, at least not in anything substantial. But he's in there for over an hour, aggressively trying to steal dinner, like climbing my husband's leg, taking stuff and running, trying to like chew on a piece of raw meat just to get anything he can. And I didn't want to give him another snack because he'd already had, you know, I mean, it wasn't out of hunger. It was out of just who this child is. And we finally set him down at the table with a plate of food. And he gets up, walks into the kitchen, grabs a bottle of cleaner and starts cleaning cabinets. (laughs) I was like, you know, we started to stop him. And I was like, you know what? If he wants to clean cabinets, let him clean cabinets. Yeah, go. Take, it, take the win <laughs> right like I just don't even I mean we do this like that that was like maybe a one hour window into our life this is how this child is from six in the morning until 10 at night wow. every day and he was seven weeks early we were in the hospital for two months because he was in the NICU and I mean my husband and I were three hours away from family, our younger kids were running the whole, or our older kids were running the whole ranch by themselves pretty much. I mean, we had people checking in, my husband was back and forth, but I definitely understand those challenges of like, you know know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And he, I mean, like I said, he's still, we do conferences and he like aggressively tries to steal other people's food and stuff. And then, I mean, he ate a Tide stick last week. (laughs) And I mean, we've, we've worked with like doctors and behavioralists and stuff. And they're just like, I don't know. He's a, see- a sensory seeking child. <laughs> like that's a nice way of putting it. And thanks for the help so much. <laughs> right. And so, I mean, we were at a conference one time and the conference got over and he gets up, goes to the next booth, helps them pack up and then gets in their car and shuts the door. Like, so you're leaving with that family. <laughs> It looked like an opportunity. <laughs> I, I mean, I kind of, I joke that he's constantly either trying to off himself or find a new family. Wow. Yeah. Well, be interesting to see how that one plays out. Right. And so like, I mean, the kids watched Lilo and Stitch the other day and I was like, oh, that is my child. Maybe he's like uh, a manufactured alien or something. I don't know. Dear me. <laughs> So yeah, and my daughter, she kind of did the same. She's always been very OCD. And like, I mean, I remember three years old, she'd be like, I'd pick her up from school and she'd be like, mommy, did you get paid? Yes, I got paid. She's like, did you put it in the bank? Yes, three-year-old, I put it in the bank. Did you get gas? I'm like, got it, thanks. Like, (laughs) And um. She's still, her and I are getting ready to travel together for two weeks um, on a conference tour. And I mean, she's 
okay, I packed my bag and I did all your laundry. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) And I mean, she's just very, very, but then at the end of the day, she like goes over and like jumps in the big recliner with my husband and they watch videos on their phones together. And she's very almost childlike. And so I just kind of, I wonder where that's coming from. That sounds like chapter six of phase of the phases of learning. Okay. I'll have to find that <laughs> one. And she's 14. So she's kind of definitely going through a transition phase herself. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of give her a hard time about it. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's my children. Cause she bites too. I don't know. <laughs> interesting yeah maybe I'm letting them be a little too free range (laughs) feral children feral children that's a new book that'll that'll really take off I think it would I wish I could honestly say that I have fully feral children but I don't I am actually quite regimented and can't handle any type of too much chaos yeah but I do encourage some feralness. I'm like, we live on 40 acres. I don't want to see your faces. <laughs> I mean, we have a we have a pond and hiking trails, and we live. The kids can walk to the little local store by our house. I I don't even know how to just. We live 27 miles from the closest town, but there just happens to be a little store that they can. Well, we live right on the Canadian border. And so technically the closest town is in Canada, but I mean, that's not, I mean, yeah. like it's not like the kids could walk to the store there, you know? So um, yeah, they can walk to the little store by our house. We live a bunch above a bunch of hop fields that are owned by Anheuser-Busch and the manager of the hop fields has said the kids can come down there and bird hunt during off seasons and stuff, you know? So they definitely have that wonderful, somewhat feral childhood, but. That's brilliant. Yeah, I, I do enjoy it. But, um, I, you know, I've loved what you've had to say. And I kind of, I was smiling a little bit at the beginning. Uh, my son and I, who I have the insightful conversations with, we had a conversation a couple nights ago that was, who was our favorite president? And of course, mine's Thomas Jefferson. And um his favorite is George Washington. And so we were discussing the merits of that. And so then he wanted to know who my second favorite president was, which is Teddy Roosevelt. And my husband was like, you guys are the biggest nerds ever. I was like, well, who's your favorite president? And of course he picks Trump or whatever. Um, You know, my, my conservative veteran husband, like big surprise, you know? And I'm like, you can't choose like a current president. You have to choose like a past president. That's what the game is. And he's like, that's dumb. How do you have a favorite past president? And I'm like, because you don't have an imagination. (laughs) But so I kind of, I was smiling a lot at the beginning of just kind of that conversation that we had recently. And now I have a little bit more, um, a few more sources to cite why he's my favorite. <laughs> well, and tell your son that he should get to know George Washington a little deeper. Turns out he is an amazing writer and thinker, one of the most important of the founding generation and doesn't get enough credit for it. His writings are phenomenal. You know, I went to Mount Vernon a couple of years ago. I tried to take my son last year and it just didn't work out. And 
while I was there, I actually bought a book on why he was such a deep thinker and bought it for my son. And he's just been devouring it. So, I mean, even when I kind of joke about who our favorite presidents are, we, it's a very insightful conversation as to why we feel like they're right. the best presidents. So her love language was physical touch. Mm. And I used to just scoop her up in, in a chair or laying next to me. I'd be sitting in my room with my husband. He'd be in the big chair and I'd be on the bed and Eliza would walk in and I'd just sort of gesture with my arm and she'd come and just nestle into me like a baby and just sit there for the longest time or I'd hold her in my arms while I was just talking and not even make her the point and just until I could feel her relax into it you know what I mean that hug that you please mm-hmm. don't let go until I'm done I could just feel her filling that 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 bucket and with that sense of connection and space and 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 love language little by little she started making hard choices and the intervening years didn't not happen she was able to sort them into place by you know getting that renegotiation and now 10 years later guess what eliza she just finished the fourth installment the final installment of a, a four volume novel series and it is phenomenal it's oh, sort wow. of dystopian sort of um other timeliney although not really it's about freedom and choice and education it's got geopolitics and spy stuff it's this amazing she's just this world builder and storyteller and to have seen her at 14 15 and 16 you would have thought she was going to be i don't know run a daycare or manage a a fast food restaurant, something that didn't require her to have all the skills that she apparently does have. She is this amazing writer. And as adults, we can, like her, go back and renegotiate those little lessons and see how everything just sort of shuffles into place. And like you were saying, raising kids is is one of the very best ways to do that. Mm -hmm. And every one of us has baggage that our parents either evil or good laid on us because no matter how good we are, stuff happens, even if it's accidental environmental, like Hiram's accident, or mm. somebody just doesn't have the emotional maturity or whatever, their own baggage to deliver what you think you need out of them as a parent. Too bad. So sad. It's your job now to fix it. Well, I know, like I was saying, the healing of being, uh, having a different relationship with my children. I have grown so much as a person, as I've healed there's certain relationships I know that will probably never heal for me, but I've been able to create them within my own family mm. and the growth that I've done as a person and the people I've seen, I'm seeing my kids turn into yeah. is really beautiful. So I, I agree that this type of schooling and relationships and I, I'm so excited that you were able to come on and like really outline this for us and I can tell you right now that your husband's book is going to be next on my read list or at least one of them. Yeah. Um, I, I have so, so little time that in my life that sometimes I don't choose books until after I get a little bit more of a in-depth into them. So I'm really excited to put this one on my list. And um, as we get to the end of our time, my favorite question for all my uh, guests is what does keep growing mean to you? Hmm. 
Well, keep growing means having, like I said, that sense of mission, that sense of purpose. I mentioned that my husband's mission, that little one liner that's written on his heart is promoting. I freedom. absolutely love it. Mine is heal families. And it's interesting because, you know, people would assume because of our, our life's work and the body of our work that we're all about education and we're not, not about education, obviously. And it's a huge and high value for us. But the thing that moves me, the thing that I am for is to heal families. And mm. for me, education is a vehicle to do that. And so for me, keeping growing with eight kids and, you know, my 12th grandkid on the way, Congratulations. my family never stops challenging me in ways that I need to promote healing in, you know, the relationships as they are transforming or in, you know, people that go through, you know, the buffetings of life or whatever, the crisis of this or that. So just within my own family, I'm finding that I'm, I'm having to develop more wisdom, more diplomacy. And in my work, I'm constantly being challenged to be to constantly refresh. We can't, we, we can't lean on what we already know because that has no power to transform either us or anybody else. It's like what you said, you're constantly learning unless as a mentor, I am constantly investing myself in the things that I am trying to share, communicate, inspire, unless I am constantly refreshing I don't have power to help others transform that there is a, a living element to learning. There is a, a, an electrical connection when I am in the zone learning. That's what is transformational, not the information that I have that I could communicate, but that, that modeling of self-education and that, that passion for the message and what, what I am for that to me is what it means to keep growing. I love it. Thank you so much. Um, how can everyone find you? We are at tjed.org. That's TJ, like Thomas Jefferson, ed.org, not com, but org. Also, um, we have a Facebook presence on a Thomas Jefferson education uh, page and a leadership education homeschool Facebook group for discussion. Plus, you know, my personal profile, Rachel Vinegar to Mill. Look me up. Love to connect with you. Constant, in fact, right now, um, we're recording this in March. We're doing a big thing called March Mathness, where daily I'm putting out a bunch of content on inspiring math learning in oh, a way fine. that we're we're leading out as you know the the parents and mentors and just making a math rich environment that infuses all the other subjects and just becomes then a part of your family culture. So oh well, um, I, I haven't totally locked in my schedule for this month, and so I might have to make sure that you hit in March. So everybody can take advantage of that. That sounds fun. Well, thank you so much for joining me and, um, everybody go find Rachel because this is amazing. And I really want to see more of these conversations. Thank you so much, Cody. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today at the Homestead Education. And I hope that I have given you something to think about this week to help others find me, please comment and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. You can also follow me on Facebook at The Homestead Education and Instagram at homestead underscore education. Do you have questions that you would like answered or just want to say hi? Please email me at hello at the homesteadeducation.com. Until next time, keep growing.